All right, this morning we're going to do something a little different. That is, we're not going to be preaching from Luke. We're going to start a special series on the church. So uh, we're, we're going to be all over the Bible, um, so I'm not going to tell you to turn any place yet. Uh, but every once in a while, the elders start talking, you know, we've been seeing people who are confused about certain things, and one of the things is just about the church and our responsibility in the church and what we are to be doing as a church. And sometimes, is, you know, I think to myself, well, you know, I taught on that, you know, four years ago. Um, <laughs> And time just goes by so fast, I don't realize that, yeah, there's probably some people here who weren't here four years ago. Um, and so what we're going to do is, I think we're going to do a six-week series. Now, I'm not going to promise that, um, but I'm, I'm intending on doing a six-week series and just covering some of the basics of the church and what the church is and what we are to be doing about the church. Now, there is this fancy term, again, that theologians use. They, uh, you know, sometimes I hate to even say these words, but I don't know what other words to use because it's the word. Um, the word is ecclesiology. Probably not a term a lot of you use very often. Um, but the Greek word for church, usually translated church in the New Testament, is ekklesia. So they basically take that Greek word and tack on the word ology, the study of. So it's the study of the ekklesia or ecclesiology um, is the big term, study of the church. And the word ecclesia in the Greek basically means those who are called out into an assembly. And so that is what we're going to talk about. And this morning, we're going to be talking about church basics, uh, just you and church basics. And as we shall see, um, it's not so basic. Uh, the questions we're going to be answering, we're going to take some time, we're going to answer four basic questions, but the answers to those questions are not so basic. And so you're going to have to really concentrate hard. Now, the good thing is, is in the next weeks, I'm going to slow way down and we're going to look at these in pieces. But this morning is what I'm going to give you is something I usually tell my seminary students not to do, which is called a data dump sermon. And so that is what you are going to get this morning is the data dump. And then uh, in weeks to follow, we will slowly work through all this data. If you look in the dictionary under the word church, you find some interesting definitions. Here's something I found. It's a building For public worship, as in they just finished building a nice new church. Or a location where religious activities take place, as in let's go to church. Or a religious service, as in let's hurry so we are not late for church. Or clergy or paid pastors. uh, You know, we'll have to get permission from the church, which means let's talk to the pastor. Or... A religious authority, as in the church, contrary to the government, has determined that abortion is wrong. Or a Christian denomination, as in the Presbyterian church. Or a profession, as in, I consider the church as a career. Or a time of public worship, as in, I'll be there after church. Or an optional religious task, people can choose Whenever they want, as in I sporadically attend church. 
or the doctrines of the Christian faith as in many are starting to set aside church morals or the Roman Catholic Church as in the head of the church, you know, Pope Pius has said we should pray to Mary speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, or a place of public worship for non-Christian religion, such as they worship at the Mormon Church, or any non-Christian religious society, the Jewish Church. So these are just 14 wrong definitions. And these are the ones you see in most of the dictionaries. And these are the ones we use a lot of times. I say, hurry up, we're going to be late for church. I tell my kids that all the time. We gotta to get to church. As if church is a location or church is a time. Oh yeah, they're gonna paint the church. And if you know the biblical definition, that's pretty funny. So this morning we're going to try and answer these four basic questions concerning the church. And the first is, what is the church? Let's start out there. If you're gonna talk about something, you gotta get down to the definition. And this is where it's just, I even hate to drag you through the mud of this, but here it is. We got this word church. We know that in society, in the dictionaries, there's tons of definitions, but what about the Bible? Well, in the Bible, the term ecclesia is used in two basic ways. One way is in a general sense, which describes people who assemble. For instance, in Acts 7.38, it speaks of Israel as a congregation in the wilderness. That word congregation is the word ecclesia. Later on in Acts 19.32, it's translated an assembly, and it's referring to this big confused mob. So whenever there is a group, there is a general use, there can be a general use of the term church or ecclesia. But usually, there's hardly any occurrences of the general uses, usually in the New Testament... It speaks of a specific group, a very special group. In Matthew sixteen eighteen, after Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus said, I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So here Jesus says some interesting things. I am going to build this assembly of called out ones, act these called out ones into assembly. I am going to call out my own assembly in the future, myself, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is the first special usage of the word ecclesia. Later on in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, in that classic text on church discipline, it says, you know, you go confront the person. If they don't repent, take two or more. If that doesn't happen, you bring them before the church and you tell it to the church, the whole assembly. That is another special usage of the word. Speaking of this group of people that, that are called out, called out Christians, Now, when you look in the book of Acts, you see the first time this word appears is in Acts 5.11. But in Acts 5.11, the people who are called the church are all those who have come to the Lord from Acts 2 through 4. When the apostles preached at Pentecost, when the tongues of fire came down, when thousands began to be saved, those are called the church. The church, an assembly 
of believers in Jesus Christ who are called out of the world into the light of the gospel who by grace through faith have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus. They are the church. And you might say, well, yeah, I know that. But the question is this. Do you know what the invisible church is? Now you might be thinking, well, that sounds fun. Uh, I would like to be invisible. It's like the invisible man comes to know Jesus. He's part of the invisible church. Well, these, this is where things get kind of strange because you'll hear somebody say, yes, well, you know, the universal invisible church. And you're thinking, what is that? Is it invisible? Well, the invisible church is a reference to all true believers, whether on earth or in heaven. All the elect of all the ages comprises the invisible church. And if you want to just speak of it inclusively, you say the universal invisible church. And if you want to scare people in Protestant churches, you say the Catholic invisible church. (laughs) Now, the word Catholic means universal. And sometimes, every time... Edward decides to do a creed, you know, and he throws a creed up here and it talks about the Holy Catholic Church. There's people up there, the bristles go up in the back of their head and they come up and go, hey, what are we talking about? The creed of the Holy Catholic Church. Well, that's all that's talking about is the universal invisible church, not Roman Catholicism, not to be confused with Roman Catholicism. So. When you look in the scriptures and you see a text like Hebrews 12:23 it says to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven you know that it's talking about the invisible church. It's invisible because only God knows who true believers are and all the true believers of all the ages are part of the invisible church. So, that's pretty easy. Then we get into another term. The local church or the visible church calvary bible church is a local church part of the visible church that is i can see you you can see me we can drive around and see other people worshiping in different buildings we are the visible church now the visible church is different from the invisible church in that the visible church which is comprised of local churches like ours It contains both believers and unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers. And the scriptures talk about local churches in a lot of different ways. Sometimes they talk about little house churches. Like in Romans 16.5 or Colossians 4.15, Paul addresses little groups of believers meeting in certain people's houses as the church at, you know, Bob's house. Okay, whenever a group gathered together, they were the church at that house. Later on, you see more general uses, but still of the specific group of believers, professing believers, like in Acts 13.1, Luke speaks of the church at Antioch, which includes all of those little local groups of believers as a whole. All of them in Antioch is the church at Antioch. 
Paul talks to the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 1, 2 speaks to the church of God at Corinth. Or we know in Revelation in the beginning chapters in 2 and 3, it gives the letters to the church of Ephesus or Smyrna or whatever. Those are local churches. So whenever you're talking about a local church, you're talking about groups of professing believers who get together and they say, most of them say they are believers in Jesus, but it's the people you see coming to a certain location to worship the Lord. Now there are believers and unbelievers in the local church. There are only believers in the invisible church. Only God knows who the invisible church is. We don't. We can guess, but we don't know. So, whenever you're talking about the totality of local churches, you're talking about the universal, visible church. All the local churches in the world, if you want to use, if you want to be precise, that's how you do it. So, Calvary Bible Church is one local church. We have people here who are part of the invisible church, and we are part of the universal, visible church on earth. Now, you're thinking, well, I'm glad we got that taken care of well we haven't got it taken care of yet because you may have heard the term church militant that's kind of a scary term today um when you start thinking of religious militants i don't know about you i think of islamic militants and so when you start thinking of the church militant what does that mean because that's a term we if you sing old hymns and stuff it talks about the church militant you're thinking hmm uh, do we need bombs and tanks and guns now as Christians? Is that what it's talking about? No. The church militant is the visible church on earth doing what God wants it to be doing, engaging in spiritual warfare, fighting the good fight, um, striving against sin and Satan and evangelizing the lost. All of that is part of what is called spiritual warfare in the Bible. Paul says, for instance, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 through 12, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil... For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. His point is, he says, for our struggle, us believers, you Ephesian believers, you who are part of the invisible church, your struggle, he doesn't say might be, sometimes is, but always is. You're always in a struggle. I don't know if you've ever woke up in the morning and just go, I'm sinless. I'm fixed. If that ever happens, you will be in heaven. You died in your sleep. No, we have to struggle just to do things like pray and read our Bible and serve and just do those basic things. We're just constantly struggling to... To do what is right. And when we are striving to do what is right, in the power of the Spirit, for the glory of God, we are doing spiritual warfare. Contrary to what some teach, spiritual warfare is not about casting out demons and nullifying curses and sprinkling holy water. Any believer who is living for the glory of God and the power of the Spirit, according to the Word of God, is doing spiritual warfare. And so we are in a battle. And because it's not against flesh and blood, we don't use guns and bombs and things like that. We have spiritual weapons. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, In the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left. He's talking about picking up these weapons of righteousness, these spiritual 
resources we have in Christ to do what God wants us to do, engage in battle. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And, you know, in your mind, you may think of, you know, big bombs hitting big concrete walls and knocking them down. But the fortresses, he goes on to say, are every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God. So how do we do it? By bringing the truth to the world, sharing the gospel, saying the Bible says this, the word of God says that, God says this. And when we bring God's truth and it confronts errors, lies, and deceptions, and false doctrine, we are knocking down those mental fortresses so that we can take every thought captive, Paul says, in obedience to Christ. That is spiritual warfare. That is why we are the church militant, because we are striving against sin, Satan, deception, lies, and errors. Now, there's another term. You may have heard of the church triumphant. What's that? Well, the church triumphant is when, after we all finish the race, die, and are glorified, or in heaven, all the believers are in heaven of all the ages, and we're perfect, sinless, glorified, and away from sin's present, we are the church triumphant in heaven. So those terms are the terms that you're going to hear and which have some serious theological implication. The invisible church, the visible church, or local church. The church militant, the church triumphant. So you have those down. Now that is... They know enough to think about. And you're probably thinking, I feel like one of the Israelites who ate quail until these definitions of the church are coming out my nostrils. <laughs> but we aren't through yet. There are, there's more. <clears throat> Once you come to the understanding that the church is not a location, it's not a building, it's not a profession... It isn't a worship service, and it isn't a denomination or religious authority or some cult group. And you understand that believers are the church. You are the church. You don't have to go to church. You already are if you know Jesus. You wake up, I'm at church. (laughs) See? Remember that, kids? Say, hurry up, we got a church. Mom, I'm already there. I know Jesus. And when you look in the Bible, believers are the church. But believers are called a lot of different things in the Bible. Let me just give you some example. For instance, in Acts 6.1, they are called disciples. In Acts 11.26, they're called Christians. In Romans 8.9, it refers to them as in the spirit. In Romans 8.29, it refers to them as those who are foreknown and predestined and the brethren. In Romans 8.33, it refers to them as God's elect. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, as in Christ and new creatures. Ephesians 1.1 calls them saints. And the faithful in Christ Jesus. And Colossians 3.12 speaks of them as the chosen of God, holy and beloved. And 1 Peter 1.23, as those who are born again. And 1 John 3.10, as the children of God. And these are just some of them. And they're the slugs of these definitions of believers. Then you add to that 
Not only all the definitions we gave, just to kind of keep things sorted, and the definitions of Christians, then you have the definitions of groups of Christians, such as the body of Christ, the members of Christ, the temple of God in the spirit, building blocks, the bride of Christ, the sheep, the flock of God, the children of God, the beloved of God, the chosen of God, the elect of God, the branches hooked to the vine. And a bunch of other ones. So then all of a sudden you think, well, no wonder why we're confused. There's too many words speaking of the same thing. Now, if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, okay, that was a terrific data dump. And so what difference does it make? Whether I go to church or choose the church or in the church or whatever. why, Why all these definitions and why all this discussion? Well, it makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference in what happens here at Calvary Bible Church. A huge difference in your life and the lives of other people. I'm just going to give you some examples. Let's just say a person who is engaged in immorality, shacking up with their girlfriend, decides to come here and, you know, check things out for several months. Now, the person's in sin. I mean, it's obvious they're engaged in morality and they don't profess to be a Christian. They're just checking us out. Do we go to that person and we rebuke them, confront them, try and get them to obey God? No. Why? Because they can't obey God. It's impossible for them to obey God. They are spiritually dead. They're devoid of the spirit. They only and always sin. It doesn't matter that they're engaged in this sin or that sin or another sin. What matters is, is they always sin. And they only sin. And so what needs to happen, first and foremost, is not, hey, you need to get your act together. Hey, you're living in sin. No, what needs to happen is, you need to know Jesus. You need to come to Christ. Because until they come to Christ, they can never obey God for his glory. Ever. Because they're spiritually dead. And that is huge. That is huge. If someone is an unbeliever and has not come to Christ, does not profess to be a Christian, their problem is not their immorality. Their problem is hell and the wrath of God. That is their problem. Until they get saved, no amount of confrontation, rebuke, or accountability will ever get them to be able to walk in holiness because they just can't do it. And you know what? This is huge if you're going to give somebody counsel. And we all do it at times. You know, before service, after service, talk to people during the week, talk to people on the phone, emails, whatever. You know, oh, I'm depressed. Oh, I'm struggling with the sin. Oh, I'm, you know, worrying. Oh, I'm anxious. Oh, I've got this trial in my life. Whatever. And some people ask you for advice and you're trying to give them advice. And what's the most important thing you need to know? Is this person part of the invisible church? Does this person know Jesus? Because if they don't know Jesus, I don't care what their problem is. They think their problem is. Their problem is hell and they need Christ. And so your only counsel is this is the gospel. This is what you do to become a Christian. Until you get to that place, nothing else in your life will get fixed. Nothing matters. You know, I've got a great marriage on my way to hell. It just doesn't work. 
So people need to come to know Christ. Now we can never be totally sure, but we can be sure that somebody understands the gospel and understands how to be saved and professes to be a Christian. I mean, at least the bare minimum of resemblance of somebody who knows Jesus. And you know, sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we're wrong. Sometimes we think somebody's a Christian and they're not. And consider church membership. You know, what if we just said, listen, if you want to become a member of Calvary Bible Church, you just show up or call up the office and say, put me on the rolls. All right, we'll type you in. You're a member. You don't have to go to any membership class and learn about what we believe. You don't have to fill out an application and give your testimony. You don't have to get interviewed by an elder and approved by the elders. You don't have to go through all that. You just sign up. You think about the consequences of that. What would happen? Then we'd have a whole bunch of unbelievers leading the church, teaching people who are devoid of the spirit, people who are held captive by Satan to do his will, people who are spiritually dead, who don't have the spirit, who can't understand the things of God, who are hostile to God, who are unable to please God, are teaching your children in Sunday school, leading you in worship up here. That would be a nightmare. And we're trying to do everything we can to prevent that kind of nightmare. But you know what? As careful as you can try and be, as fine as you can make the grid to try and strain people out to make sure only the invisible church gets through, the unbelievers still get through. And you know what? They tell you all the right things. They know all the right verses. They speak all the right jargon because they grew up in a Christian family and went to a Christian school and a Christian college and they've got it all down. They convince you that they know Jesus. They get involved in ministry, and then two years later, they come to Christ. Praise God. (laughs) And so we're trying to do everything we can to keep people like that in leadership, because you know what? They have really nothing to offer a believer. So that's why it makes a difference. There would be huge consequences if you don't realize there are tares among the wheat and sheep Among the goats, always. You don't want to take the goats and the tares and put them into leadership because they really have nothing to offer. Only true believers who know Jesus Christ, those who are part of the invisible church, have spiritual gifts and can minister for the glory of God. Okay, so that's the church. True believers in Jesus Christ, those who are part of the invisible church. Now, second question, why is the church unique? Why is it unique? Well, have you ever thought about this? Is Adam and Eve and Noah and Joseph and Moses and David and Daniel, are they part of the church? No, yes, no, yes. Um, People are going, "Mm, yes, no, yes. Well, they're believers. You see, if you believe in what is called, big term, covenant theology, you believe... That the church is defined as the people of God. Now, if that's your definition, the people of God, then that means the church existed in the Old Testament. That anybody who knew God in the Old Testament was part of the church. And that the church isn't something new. The church is something old. But this is a false view. I'm going to explain why. 
And it has huge ramifications in how you interpret hundreds, if not thousands of scriptures. The church did not exist until Acts 2, when the apostles first first preached the gospel and the power of the spirit and people came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and then were united to the church and received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The church never existed or even was revealed in the Old Testament. For instance, in Romans 11.25 and Romans 16.25, Paul describes his ministry to the Gentiles as, the, as uh, somebody who's helping form the church as a mystery that has been kept secret for long ages past. Kept secret. That is, it wasn't before revealed. But the people of God were before revealed. Listen, the Jews had no idea. If you were to talk to a Jew before Jesus came along and said, Now, tell me, do you think when the Messiah comes, you're going to reject him, hate him, falsely accuse him, have him tried, crucified? And then God is going to take you and set you aside. And he is then going to send his prophets, his apostles out to the Gentile world and bring the Gentiles into the kingdom and give them the promises that were first spoken to Abraham. They would say, what? Are you crazy? No way. No way. We are the chosen people. We got the universal promises. I mean, we have those unconditional promises given to Abraham and his seed. And they are part of Abraham. They're, they're Gentile dogs. That's how they would think. See, and that's what's going on here. This is why the church is unique. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to do a little time in Ephesians. We're going to do... Racing exposition in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and following. We're just going to go through here. I'm just going to make some comments. And I want you to see the big picture of why the church is such an incredible, unique, mind-blowing thing. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Look there. Paul says, therefore remember... That formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. So he's talking about Gentiles. And when he says you Gentiles in the flesh, that he's saying you who are physically Gentiles. That is, you're not Jewish by nationality. Who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. The circumcision uh, referring to the Jews who, out of their commitment, wanting to have the sign of Moses and obedience to the law, were physically circumcised. The Gentiles, who did not have the law, who did not care to have that sign, were not the uncircumcision, were the Gentiles. Verse 12, remember that you were at that Time. Now he's speaking to the Gentiles and he's going to tell them what they were like before Christ. And listen to how bleak this is. This is all of them. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is, the Gentiles were godless godless heathens headed for hell with no possibility of being saved. 
That's what he basically says there. But now in Christ Jesus, which we know that phrase in Christ Jesus is a term speaking to those who are part of the invisible church, true believers. Now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought in by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups, Gentile and Jew, into one, the church, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now just stop there. Picture in your mind this huge, huge concrete wall, you know, like the wall in Berlin. On this side we have Jews. On this side we have Gentiles. There's this huge barrier in between the two groups. This barrier, this dividing wall. And what he's talking about here is the law of Moses and all the regulations they added to it. Verse 15, by abolishing in his flesh, his death on the cross, the enmity. And I know the enmity is not a word probably most of you use. But it just means that which causes hostilities or difference. You have conflict between the two. So the Jews over here are saying, you Gentile dogs, you lawless pagans. And the Gentiles over there, you religious hypocrites and you isolationists and legalists. And, you know, they're... They're at odds. They're at enmity. But this barrier is the enmity. And it's separating this group of Jews from this group of Gentiles. The thing is, verse 15 says that Jesus abolished in his flesh this barrier, which he says, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Jesus broke down the barrier, the law of Moses and all the traditions that were added to it. So that in himself he might make the two, Gentile and Jew, into one new man, that is the church, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body, the church, to God, through the cross, by it, having put to death the enmity. This is the whole thing. This text is so loaded, it's just insane. But this is how it is, basically, in summary. The Jews are the chosen people of God, no doubt. You know, the descendants of Abraham. The Jews receive the law of God. The Jews receive the promises of God, of of the coming Messiah, of eternal life. The Jews have all of that. In addition to that, they add on a whole bunch of their own regulations. Then they're on their side of the wall saying... You guys don't belong to us because you don't have the law and you don't have the promises. And you don't keep our traditions. Well, no, duh. They kept it from them. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, they they used the law and their traditions as this big wall which divided them from the Gentiles. So Jesus comes along. And he knocks down the wall. He sets aside the law of Moses and he establishes the law of Christ. He teaches his apostles and sends them out to preach the gospel that whosoever believes will be saved and brought into the kingdom. Whether Jew or Gentile, you all get in through faith in Christ under the new law system, the law of Christ. And so now all these traditions and the law of Moses are no longer a barrier. They've been knocked down and both Gentile and Jew are brought together through faith in Christ into one new man called the church. And that's where we're at. Now, look down at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul now sums up what he has just been talking about to the Gentile Ephesian believers and says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. 
which is what the Gentiles were before Christ. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There is an equality now with Jews in salvation. You are fellow citizens with the saints, the holy ones, and you are of God's household. Jews never could think about this. This is just totally new stuff called the New Testament mystery. Look down, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles were the ones used by God to establish a church, preach the gospel, communicate the law of Christ, which replaced the law of Moses, so both Gentiles and Jews could be one together in the church. Verse 21, whom the whole building, speaking of the church, being fitted together is growing to a holy temple in the Lord, and whom you also are being built Together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Speaking of true believers. Indeed, this is just blasphemous, heretical, inconceivable to a Jew. And that's why Paul calls it the mystery. A mystery that is a truth never before revealed in the Old Testament. Look down in Ephesians 3 verse 1. Paul continues. And this is just incredible. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which is given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, again, this is something new, something never before revealed, verse 4, by referring to this, this mystery that he was a stewardship of, that is the gospel, When you read, you can understand my insights into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. It has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, New Testament times, in the spirit to be specific. And here's the mind blower that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is, by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're brought in to the free gift of eternal life, brought in to the blessings of Israel, brought into the promises of the Messiah. Verse 7, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of a of his power to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light. What is the administration of the mystery? Then and this whole phrase just means to bring to light the gospel, which Paul was to be an administrator of, or he was called to preach the gospel, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. It wasn't around in the Old Testament. Verse 10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, now made known, New Testament times, through the church, to the rulers and authorities in, this is weird, the heavenly places. Angels. The church was so shocking, so unique, so special, that even holy angels never would have conceived that God would have taken his chosen people, Israel, and set them aside for a time 
to bring Gentiles into the kingdom of Christ and the promises made to Abraham and his descendants. Just totally out of the realm of angelic thinking. It was so unique. And this is also why the church never existed in the Old Testament. It was not revealed until the New Testament. It was not born until Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was not yet given. The gospel was not yet preached. Gentile and Jew are not brought together in one new man, which is the church. Paul in Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says this to the Jews and Gentiles. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. You see that? When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his person to save you, and that alone, and are saved, you then become a spiritual child of Abraham, if you're a Gentile, and you then receive the promises given to Abraham in him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed, Abrahamic covenant, and from that the Davidic covenant, and from that, the new covenant, and all those covenants that come into play here, you get all of those blessings promised to Israel because you are in Jesus. Jesus is the true Jew, and by being in Jesus, you get to be the children of Abraham and receive the promises, and that is what makes the church unique because it takes a group who formerly did not have the promises and could not be included and includes them together with the Jews. And this whole time period when God is working to bring Gentiles into the kingdom is called the dispensation of the church. That's our third point. What is the dispensation of the church? You maybe hear somebody say, yeah, I believe in dispensational theology. And you're thinking, oh no, another term. Um, Yeah, another term. A dispensation is just a time period, a time period when something is occurring. And so when you look in the Bible, you see sometimes different dispensations. Now, there are those. Calvary Bible Church believes what is called dispensational theology. Um, Some believe in what is called covenant theology, and they kind of break the Bible up based off of covenants that are stated and even non-stated. We believe in dispensational theology and dispensational theology teaches that in different time periods, God worked in different ways. Now, some people like to say there's seven because, you know, seven's a biblical number. The Bible never says that. I think there's more than seven. But here are kind of like the classic seven dispensations. And as I just read these, I'm not even going to comment on them. You can just think in your mind how God worked differently and how things were different during these time periods and how they changed from one period to the next. How God worked before the fall. How God worked after the fall until the law of Moses was given. Until how God worked from the time the law of Moses was given until the time of Christ's death and the establishment of the church. 
and the time or dispensation from the beginning of the church in Acts 2 to the beginning of the tribulation or the time of the tribulation when God returns again to redeem Israel or the time from the tribulation, the second coming and then the second coming to the end of the millennium and then the great white throne and the judgment of Satan and demons and all unbelievers. And then from that time on into eternity, you see, you can clearly see that there are dispensations. Now, those who believe in covenant theology do see the dispensations. And those who believe in dispensational theology do see some of the covenants the covenant guys see. But we as a church believe in dispensational theology. That is, we believe we are in a special age now called the church age. The church age. This is the dispensation or the time of the church. Now... How do we kind of narrow that down? How does that happen in history? Well, if you look in the Bible, there is this time period. Uh, some of you have been coming to the Daniel class. How many of you have been coming to the Daniel class? At least uh, sometimes. Yeah, I mean, we don't have it anymore, but yeah, um, it's happening tonight. Um, yeah, okay, so we have the Daniel class, okay? We have learned in the Daniel class, those fortunate few, um, that Daniel had this vision of this, actually, Nebuchadnezzar did, and Daniel had the vision interpreted of this big statue. And remember the statue had a head of gold and arms and chest of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs of iron and feet mixed with iron and clay. And then those feet were standing on a stone not made with the hands of men, speaking of the kingdom of Christ. And all of those kingdoms have pretty much come and gone. Except for the last one, the Roman Empire kind of decayed, fell apart, but will be revived again. And it's represented by the feet mixed with iron and clay. And later on in chapter 7, it is described as the beast with ten horns. This revived Roman Empire. Well, the time period when Gentiles are dominating the world, that time from the Babylonian captivity through the Medo-Persian Empire, Greece Empire, Roman Empire, revived Roman Empire, all the way to the end of the tribulation, that time period is called the times of the Gentiles. For instance, in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus is speaking of what's going to happen during the last seven years, the tribulation before Jesus returns to earth. And he says, they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that time happens when Jesus comes back to earth to set up his kingdom. And then Gentile kingdoms no longer are reigning on the earth. His kingdom and his kingdom alone is reigning. Now the church age appears within the times of the Gentiles. And the first kind of mention we get of it is in Matthew 21. There is that parable about the landowner and his labors. You probably remember it. Um, I'll just remind you. There is the parable where there's a guy who owns the vineyard. And he owns the vineyard. And so what he does is he has these laborers appointed to take care of it. Now the laborers represent the leaders of Israel. And so God then decides to check up on the laborers when he hears they aren't really doing a good job. So he sends some of his servants, which represent the prophets, and they kill them. He sends more servants. They kill them. 
So then he sends his own son, which represents Jesus, and they kill him. Then Jesus asks the Jewish leaders, so what should be done to those laborers? And the Jews indict themselves and they say, he should bring those riches to a wretched end. And then you remember what Jesus says right after that? I'll remind you. Matthew 21, 43. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Here, Jesus says, you know what's going to happen? God entrusted you with his vineyard leaders and you didn't do a good job. He sent his prophets and you killed them. He sent more and you killed them. He sent his son and you're going to kill him. And guess what? God is going to take the kingdom offer away from you, set you aside, and he's going to find another people, Gentiles, who are going to produce the fruit of repentance and faith in your Messiah. And so in that text, Jesus lets them know that he is establishing this new offer to a new people. And we learn all about it in Romans 11. Turn there. Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. And yeah, I would love to go through the whole chapter, but we're just going to look at one verse. It's really a shame. Um, Romans chapter 11. And, and I would encourage you to just kind of take a quiet time this week or five and try and figure this whole chapter out. It is very wonderful and just has some great things to say. But in short, in this chapter... Paul is talking about his passion for the Jews as an ethnic nation and how, yes, they have been set aside for a time, like Jesus said. Yes, Gentiles have been grafted into the natural olive stock, the promises to Abraham, to Jesus. They have been grafted in, but there is a time when they're going to be included back in during the tribulation. And this, look at verse 25, where he kind of sums up everything he says in the chapter, and he says this. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Notice it's a mystery. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation. Now, don't get all cocky because you're going to heaven and the, you know, a lot of the Jews aren't. That a partial hardening has happened. Speaking of the Jews, because Jews did come to Christ, a lot of them, at the beginning of the church. And all the way through, some Jews have come to Christ. We have some in this congregation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is not to be confused with the times of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles is that time period of the church, the church dispensation when God has, quote, set aside his people and started harvesting Gentiles to bring them into the kingdom. When that time comes to an end, the rapture of the church happens, the tribulation ensues, and yes, Gentiles will be saved during the tribulation, but that is the time of Jacob's trouble when God then seeks to redeem Israel and get them to look on Jesus, and they will look on him who they have pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only begotten son, and then all Israel is saved. That happens during the tribulation, then Christ returns. So that time period from Acts 2 to the rapture is the church age or the church dispensation. Last final question, which we are going to just totally blow out in weeks to come. So we're just going to survey it is what is the purpose of the church? If you were to go to Calvary Bible Church website, click on what we believe and it brings up our philosophy of ministry. 
And there's your answer in as concise a form as we could put it. The first thing is to exalt God by doing ministry according to God's word, relying on God's resources for God's glory. And a couple of references are given. That's the first purpose of the church, to glorify God. Secondly, to edify the believers by teaching and shepherding them with the whole counsel of God in love so that they can live and minister in likeness of Christ. And third, to evangelize the lost by proclaiming the gospel of Christ both privately and publicly in all the world. So you have those three things, exalting God, worshiping God, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry and evangelizing the lost. So listen, if you want to start something here that's the grid we're going to strain it through say yeah you know i've got this idea we could recycle rubber in the parking lot (laughs) people could bring their own tires and broken rubber bands and we could pile them all up there and keep the world from being polluted and the elders are going to look now does that have to do with exalting god and worship no uh edifying believers no uh evangelizing loss no no you can't do the rubber recycling idea Because it doesn't fit into the purpose while we're here. And a lot of times people bring up things and they're great things and they aren't necessarily evil things, but we don't get behind it because we say, no, that's not why we're here. So summing up, what have we learned this morning? Probably too much. We've learned that there is the invisible church comprised of all true believers of all ages. You might call it the universal invisible church or even the Catholic invisible church if you want to sound scary. There is the visible church or local church, which is all of those visible people who profess to know Jesus, who gather in the local congregations and houses and places around the world. We have learned about the church militant, which is true believers obeying God and the power of the Holy Spirit, doing spiritual warfare by pursuing righteousness and evangelizing the lost. And that there is the church triumphant, that when all the invisible church gets to heaven, they are the church triumphant. We have learned that there are many unbiblical definitions of the church, and we like to use them. And we've learned that there are a lot of synonyms for true believers in Jesus and groups of true believers in Jesus in the New Testament. And so what is the application of all this? It's this. Are you part of the invisible church? That's the first thing. Before we get into all the details of doing church and being involved in church and fulfilling your responsibility, you have to first become part of the invisible church through faith in Christ. And if you've never repented of your sins, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never asked God to save you, if you've never believed that Jesus died for your sins, was buried and rose again on the third day and trusted in that and only in that to save you, then do it today and become part of the invisible church. And then I have more for you to do. Then start exalting God. Glorify God. Worship God in spirit and truth. Start being part of this body. Be equipped For the work of the ministry, share your faith. And if you are part of the invisible church and you know you're saved, the question is, are you doing those things? Is your life right now a life that is giving glory to God, that's worshiping God in spirit and truth, that's being part of the discipleship process that's going on here, that's evangelizing the lost? Uh, Those are just, these are just ABCs of church. Now, I just want to encourage you, 
If you realize, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm saved. I, I'm, I know I'm saved and I'm just not doing all I should. Well, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's power is perfected in your weakness. I mean, even Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And I do the very things I don't want to. So be encouraged. It's a process. Growth is a process. And God will abundantly supply all of your needs through his riches in Christ Jesus. But if Calvary Bible Church is ever going to be the church that God wants it to be, we all have to come to know Jesus and begin to fulfill what God wants us to do as a body of believers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything we quickly went over. I pray that if there are people here who are confused and maybe lost and too many big terms and too many passages, help them just to relax. And in the weeks to come, as we slowly go through a lot of the particulars of what we have covered this morning, that they would come to understand your church, what it is, its uniqueness, the time you have for it here on earth, and our responsibility as believers in the church. Father, help us all to Seek to do your will, to wage the good warfare and the power of your spirit, to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, so that when you come back, we will not be ashamed. And Father, if there are people here who don't know you, please save them, for we cannot help them to cry out to you in their hearts so that they might come to know Jesus Christ, be transformed, transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, and Father, be united with the fellowship of all believers, the invisible church, who someday will be the church triumphant in heaven. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.